This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Good evening, everyone. I'm Russell Briggs. I'm Director of Exhibitions and Collections at ACME. I welcome all of you here tonight. Uh, let me start by expressing my gratitude to the Wurundjeri people of the great Kulin Nation on whose lands we gather tonight and pay my respects to their elders past and present. We're really happy to have you here. This is the uh, climax of two days of uh, a superhero symposium. Many of you in the audience have been here throughout, uh, but also many of you have come to see our special guest of honor tonight. Um, and we welcome both, well, all of you. <laughs> um, Tonight, uh, uh, tonight's evening specifically is sponsored by Swinburne University uh, of Technology, Cinema, and Screen Studies, and we thank them so much for the help in being able to bring Paul out and uh, to make this evening possible. I also want to remind you that we'll be doing a book signing afterwards for Paul's book, and, uh, and we hope you'll all stay and uh, have a chat with him afterwards as well. Um, I'm not going to introduce Paul. First of all, all of you know who he is because he wouldn't be here otherwise. But second of all, Liam's going to do a proper introduction uh, uh, for a moment we get it. But I am going to introduce Liam, um, Dr. Liam Burke, in fact. He of the delicious Irish accent, which you will all get an hour of now, and I hope you can follow it all. Um, he's the course director uh, of media at Swinburne University of Technology. His research areas include cinema, comics, adaptation studies, and new media and migration. Uh, his most recent book, the comic book film adaptation, Exploring Modern Hollywood's Leading Genre, was published in May and is the first book-length study of a group of films that have dominated mainstream media for over a decade, and it's available in the Acme shop, if that sounds interesting to you. Um, he's going to lead Paul in an in-conversation here, uh, and we hope that all of you really enjoy this and that you'll sort of follow along with what we do over the next few years. This is kicking off a three-year-long Australia Research Council grant about superheroes and identity. Um, this, is, this first couple days is the beginning of it. Uh, it'll climax in even a larger public conference in a couple of years, and we hope a major blockbuster exhibition that will come to ACME um, as the climax of, of the full three-year project. And we know we'll see you all again for that. So thank you very much. Uh, let me bring Liam and Paul to the stage now. Hope you enjoy yourself. Thanks. Thanks, Russell. That really doesn't leave much uh, for me to say. Apart from one uh, piece of housekeeping, we're going to do uh, me and Paul are going to just chat for about 45 minutes, then we'll open it to questions. So we think about questions as we go along. I would advise thinking of more than one question, because inevitably, whatever your question is, no matter how carefully crafted it is, someone will ask it before you. Spoiler alert, we will be talking about Harley Quinn. So think about one, two, three questions you might have, and we'll bring you down to these two mics down here, but don't get off, off your seat yet. That's not for about 45 minutes. Uh, so uh, how do we go about introducing someone who's been an integral part of popular culture for the better part of a quarter of a century? Uh, you know, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, Ewoks, Tiny Tunes, Animaniacs, Freakazoid, uh, Justice League, uh, Jingle Bell, uh, Lost, and of course, he's brought Batman to the future and back again on page in games and on screen. So uh, I suppose with the enthusiasm of an unbound Harley Quinn 
please welcome to the stage with the architect of your childhood, uh, Mr. Paul Dini. So I feel I like I should apologize <laughs> for all those hours wasted in front of the TV. <laughs> well, I mean, it really wasn't hours wasted. You think, my, I mean, just to personalize it for yes. a minute, uh, my first entry point to the Star Wars universe was Ewoks. I thought Luke Skywalker was boring. Huh. Then Tiny Toons became my favorite show, and then Batman the Animated Series became my favorite show, and that's pretty much lasted it ever since. Oh, but, I mean, let's think. Uh, let's go back to your own childhood. Sure. You describe in your new book, uh, Dark Knight, mm -hmm. a true Batman story, that growing up, you felt like an invisible kid. Yep, very and, much so. And uh, what was kind of your outlet for that sort of sense of isolation and loneliness? Well, like a lot of kids, I, I turned inward to my imagination and I focused on the things that I loved as a, as a child, which were stories, comic strips, um, uh, TV shows. I think we have a slide, actually, that, that'll go with this. Travis, yeah? Maybe we would. Oh, yeah. That was, uh, that was sort of me for a long time. I, uh, it was, I was one of those kids who just, you know, was not very resilient, and I still remember the first time I was ever, you know, seriously bullied, and I tended to internalize it. I thought it was all about me, and I would ask my parents about it, and they made it kind of, I think they meant it better than it sounded, but they sort of made it sound like it was about me, like, well, you don't want to have that happen, so you need to do this, and you need to be kind of like that to, uh, to get along with people, and uh, it the message I took away from that was I sort of wanted to drift underneath the radar from that point on. Your escape was imagination. Mm -hmm. I think there, there's a slight uh, to go with that. Yeah. And this is how you convey it in Dark Knight, a true Batman story. You'd, you know, you'd be in church, you'd be at a mm -hmm. family dinner, you'd be bored out of your mind, mm -hmm. and you'd see cartoon characters populating that space. Yeah, I would always sort of zone out, and inside uh, cartoons would play, and bits of, of movies and uh, just sort of a running dialogue with these these characters. And when I talked to, when I was uh, writing the book with Eduardo Rizzo, I just listed a um, a number of books and things that I liked. I liked Alice in Wonderland, James Bond, The Jungle Book, Superheroes, uh, Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge is in there peeking around, Superman there, and just, just a wide variety of characters. And I had a, a lot more than are there, but he chose ones that he felt were kind of seminal to the book and the point of the story. Do you think that's the point? Because we're here mm -hmm. capping off a two-day uh, symposium about superheroes. Do you think that's their, their function, their role in society, this sort of escapist uh, fantasy? Yeah. I mean, I think that people, uh, the, the children turn to a lot of different things in order to cope with the world or find their place in the world. The sports is a big outlet, music, art. Um, and I think that uh, imagination is a very healthy outlet. Uh, certainly then you know, uh, running with a gang or, you know, looking through gun catalogs or something like that. And you have a sequence in the book, and yeah. we'll come to that later, about after your trauma, you did actually think about, you went to buy a gun. Yeah. And, you, and I think Batman, in kind of the voice in your head, kind of chides you and says, how is this not an escapist fantasy? Well, it's, it's, it's very true. I mean, that was one of the things I did do is to, because you're looking for, uh, after I was mugged, to make some sort of sense out of it. And then you crave some sort of power. You can't get any sort of justice from the people who, who assaulted you, but you can kind of psych yourself into a situation of 
maybe I can be powerful, maybe there's something I can do. So I did take some nights and go to the gun, uh, the, 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 the rifle range, the gun, the gun club, and, uh, and shot guns. I've always known how to use a gun ever since I was a kid because it, also in the book, uh, we would spend summers on a, on a ranch and I learned kind of respect mm-hmm. for a gun because I was, I was uh, my uncle, for lack of a better word, he was more of a godfather, uh, taught me how to take a gun apart and put it back together, and I realized it was a lot of work, and it, and it, and it involved a lot of intensity and, and concentration, and it was a tool and more than anything, but I also realized, because there was an incident where I almost had a, had a terrible mistake and I almost shot my brother's head off, that, I, uh, that it's something to be respected, and I didn't really want it in my life very much. Good training for a Batman writer, given his yes. no guns, no kill policy. Mm-hmm. So how do you go from being kind of a, a, a fan of all this popular culture, because I'm sure there are aspiring writers here, mm-hmm. and I know you can't condense a career into a, a, a soundbite, but what was sort of your trajectory to get into writing? Well, there was, early on, there was just nothing in my world that I wanted to do. It never really occurred to me to do anything else. I was in high school, and I went to a, a, a boarding school, and everybody was very content to study math and uh, science and, and everything. I had a terrible time with math. I could, my brain just didn't function that way. And I was so bad that um, my grades and every other uh, uh, form of education were very good, especially in literature, so they made a special exception for me. They wanted me to stay in the school. They just said, okay, we'll give you a playwriting class, we'll give you a play reading class, and we'll take those in, in lieu of, of math. So I would read you know, Shakespeare at a college level, and I read drama, and I, read, uh, and I wrote, and I would hand in these papers. And I was very blessed that they were able to do that for me because they just wanted to see me get through, the, um, uh, through high school. And, and how does that transition then to, into the industry? Well, at that point, it just sort of fixed in my head that I would always do that because I looked at everything else and I looked at what everybody else was prepping for and I didn't like any of it. Most of, them, most of the guys I went to school with, and I say guys because it was an all-boys boarding school, a lot of them were from privilege, a lot of them were from fairly wealthy families, and a lot of them were um, party boys. And they had a lot of money to spend. And... Uh, you know, not dumping on anybody's lifestyle, but at the, t- at the time, I'm there on a scholarship. My dad is making sacrifices to send me there, and I'm watching guys go out and, you know, party up on the weekends, kind of cruise through with C-pluses with the idea that they're going to go into their dad's business and, you know, finance or construction or something, and they kind of have it made at that point. And I'm going to have to get a job of some sort when I get out of uh, college, if I go. And the thing I re- that really you know, honed in on was I want to be a cartoonist, I want to do animation, I want to do something in that world, and I'm going to just concentrate on that. So when I went to college, I went to a a college called Emerson in Boston, and it was uh, very much on the arts and very much on communication and acting and writing. And that's what I did for the three and a half years I was there. And when I was there, I drew a lot of, car- of cartoons for the school newspaper, and I just sort of thought, you know, this is all I want to do. A little sideways into acting, and then I went on a few auditions, and I re- just really hated them. I hated having to read somebody else's dialogue. I hated having to 
go in and smile and, 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 and act like another person for a job that I didn't really want but would look good on my resume. So it just wasn't for me. I w would rather just write the words for it than try and say somebody else's. And one of your first key credits is probably surprising to some is He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, mm -hmm. where the brief was, yes. write the cartoon that sells the toys. That's right. That's right. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe was... Really interesting. It was uh, it was a time. I was like 23, 24. I was I was still pretty young. I was and uh, I was working at a studio called Filmation, which uh, no longer exists, but it was very big in the 70s and 80s. It was uh, a big supplier of Saturday morning uh, cartoons in the states, and a lot of what they did were were shows based on pre-existing properties, like they had the rights to Tarzan and Batman and. Uh, the Lone Ranger, and uh, He-Man was a, an idea that had been generated by Mattel, and they brought it in uh, to the writers on staff, of which I, I was one at that time, and they said, we really need to develop a show uh, you know, uh, about this. And they had very stock descriptions of who the character was, like He-Man is a good guy, Skeletor is a bad guy, Beast-Man is a henchman. They really didn't know who Tila was, they didn't know... Some of the secondary characters are, is, is Zodak a good guy, a bad guy? Who is Birdman? We don't know. They fit the, bo the body model. That's, and we just changed the head. Those and big, we, massive bodies with yeah, huge ties. That's yeah. right. You know, so if you look at it, Evelyn and, and, and Tila are the same body, and so is the sorceress. They just change a few things uh, you know, here and there. So it really fell to us, to uh, the writers, to develop these characters. And because there were no rules and because nobody was really expecting all that much, we were able to go in and have a pretty fun time. So it was myself and a few other writers like Larry Dottilio and, um, and Michael Reeves. And later on, J. Michael Straczynski got involved toward the end of the He-Man and into She-Ra. So they were all writers who loved science fiction and fantasy and were kind of doing double duty between um, like syndicated science fiction live action and animation. And uh, it, it was fun to do, and it was also syndication, so it wasn't under the rules of Saturday morning. So you could have maybe not so much action and, and violence, but the stories were just a little bit more interesting because you didn't have to have everything approved by a, a Saturday morning committee. And later on with Freakazoid and some other shows, there's an implicit critique of this toyetic aspect, this merchandising aspect. Did you ever find that as sort of a, like a, a really kind of stifling limitation? To, um, like, to make sure that there was an action figure for each storyline or each new world that He-Man and the Masters of the Universe would visit? Well, it, with Masters of the Universe, it was, it was not as bad as some shows because we had the characters and we made the show really mo about the character. And if they wanted us to put in a vehicle, we, we put in a vehicle. There were other shows, uh, one, of the, one of the vehicles they had coming out. But as far as you know, the, the episodes we wanted to write, they, they were pretty liberal with that. And then they wound up... Um, excuse me, um, merchandising some of the characters that we put in just so we're sort of on our own, and some really weird characters, too, that, that they just made for the collector's market. Do you remember one in particular that you yeah. can't believe it's in plastic now? Yeah, it, was, it, it sort of freaked me out when I saw this a few years ago. We, I'd written this one episode, and an artist named Warren Greenwood kind of helped on the story, where He-Man went into another universe, and he wound up fighting this big, mean rabbit named Plundor. And it was sort of like... Our version of Howard the Duck, you know, instead let's let's take a, a human and put him in a cartoon world. And we were actually thinking like Howard the Duck, and we were actually were kind of 
the first drawing of Plundor was sort of a nod to Matt Groening and that he looked like his Binky the Rabbit, but we had to change it because you know we didn't want Matt suing us. <laughs> and then they made a figure of him, and I got it at San Diego Con like three years ago, and I'm going, this is the stupid, really? <laughs> Plundor? Damn, okay. So I, I, I took, I don't even take it out of the box. It's sitting on my shelf somewhere. And we're now on the eve of a, a the first cinematic extension of sure. the Star Wars universe. Rogue One mm-hmm. is the first time there's a right. feature film that's extended it. But way, way back, you guys with Ewoks yeah. were the first kind of real guys, maybe outside of some of the novelizations, to really extend mm-hmm. that universe. Yeah. What was it like working for Lucasfilm, working with George Lucas and extending this sort of, uh, even at that point, this sort of revered trilogy? Well, it was, a, it was a very interesting experience. It was very bittersweet in a lot of ways, mostly sweet, because... It, at the time, I was working at a, at a studio called Ruby Spears, and we were doing basic Saturday morning stuff. And the word had gotten out that George Lucas wanted to do animation for Saturday morning, and that they were looking at, at writers. And once I heard that, I thought, boy, I would like to get in there, because I really love Star Wars, and I liked the idea of what Lucas was putting together with Skywalker Ranch, which really wasn't up and running at the time. So I took an episode of Dungeons and Dragons that I had written that was a a new show coming on and I was lucky enough to get a finished episode on a VHS tape and I took that and my script and luckily the episode was animated at a studio called TMS in, in Japan so it looked really good and the music was really great and it followed the script very closely so I sort of made a package and I sent that in and he watched it and he thought okay you, you got the job because it was such a nice you know, package and and Dungeons and Dragons was sort of a cut up as far as action was going at that time. So I went up there with a few other writers, and uh, it was kind of an arduous process. Some some of the writers were were um, let go early on, but he liked my take on Ewoks because he and I got on very well when we were talking about things like. Carl Barks and Uncle Scrooge and uh, funny animal comics that he had read as a kid. I'd read a lot of the same ones. And we agree that that was a good sensibility for Ewoks. So working on Ewoks, the development, and the first season was a lot of fun. Um, As the second season moved in, the network, ABC, got more involved in it. They began thinking, like, okay, it has to be more of a standard children's show. So a lot of the things that we, and they kept hearing, like, okay, younger, funnier, to me, which is the kiss of death, is when... It's when they are making this edict, they don't know what they want, and so it's coming down on us. And at that point, uh, George had sort of moved off. It was no longer in his attention. He was saying, okay, we'll just do two years of this, and and then we'll do something else. So the idea of younger and funnier kind of brings us to Tiny Tunes. Yes. Which was a younger version of the Looney Tunes. Yes, exactly. But it was much funnier uh-huh. uh, than most of the other yeah. young shows at the time. There was Muppet Babies. There was a sure. pop called Scooby-Doo. There was Flintstone Kids. Mm-hmm. And there was this kind of subgenre of doing rejuvenating long-standing characters with younger versions. But of course, you did this with Steven Spielberg. Right. So pivoting from Lucas to Spielberg. What was that like? Well, I'd say, first off, with that habit of, of making younger characters, I, I don't like it very much. And in fact, I really dislike it when you consider that the characters that they're derived from are usually a lot funnier and a lot better done. And when you look at something like the original Yogi Bear and Huckleberry Hound cartoons, those were a lot of fun. And then suddenly the network is saying, make Yogi like 12 years old and give him a gang and they're all hanging out together and make it young and funny and just goofy. And it's like, no, goofy doesn't mean anything other than the name of the Disney character. It's goofy is just, it's mush. And when you're doing, and I know why they want to do the younger characters because it's a new franchise. 
there, you, you can't sell Yogi Bear toys as, as, many, as much as you could, but you can sell a young Yogi mm. Bear. Not, not to everybody, but that's the thinking of the, yeah. the merchandise people. And Tiny Toons was a little bit better because it wasn't just making young Bugs Bunny. It was like, let's do a school for cartoon characters and training. They just happen to be young roadrunners and skunks and bunnies and things like that. They can interact with Bugs and Daffy. We can actually do a couple of fun bits with Bugs and Daffy or even like a, a co-star cartoon mm -hmm. with him occasionally. But let's really make Buster and Babs and uh, Montana Max be their own character. And, um, and that was a lot of fun. And I think the, the charm of that was that we were on Fox Kids, which was syndication and not Saturday morning. And Steven Spielberg was a very good steward to those characters and a very good creative partner because he had just come off like two years before doing Who Framed Roger yeah. Rabbit and he really loves uh, Looney Tunes. And he's a guy, if you think you know Looney Tunes, you don't know them <laughs> as good as Steven because he can talk every element of Looney Tunes. And at one point he was saying, well, you want the music in this to be like my favorite composer, Bill Lava. And I was going like, what? And I, because that's, you know, I said, Lava sucks. And he go, and, and I, I blurted that and he goes, no, no, watch, watch some of his stuff. You'll, you'll be surprised because Carl Stalling was a guy yeah. I liked. And then I did go through and I watched some of his stuff and I watched, and, and Stephen was talking more like old Western serials and the Zorro show. And once I listened to those scores, I was going like, oh, no, no, I'm, I apologize. You're right. Bill Lava is great. And let's try and do as much of his stuff as we can, Carl Stalling and Milt Franklin. Yeah. So he really knows the stuff down and he's got the stuff and nobody has a bigger animation collection that's, than he does. That's why he's Steven Spielberg. It's that kind of instinct. Yes. That, that idea that... He was coming off Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and yes. there was this sort of animation renaissance that was happening. Yes. Who Framed Roger Rabbit reminded people what they loved about the old stuff. Yes. And of course, it was the Disney renaissance, and in that sort of perfect storm, Batman the Animated Series comes about. Yeah, uh, here's, here's, the, here's the thing about Warners at that time. It, was, it had been kind of, not really dormant, but kind of, uh, you know, not running on all thrusters, because they were doing mostly Bugs Bunny compilation specials. And, uh, and commercials and things like that. There wasn't a lot of interest or money to do the shorts and uh, a lot of new animation. But because Stephen had this relationship with Warners, that really brought Warners back in a big way into television animation. And we had a very young crew starting off at Tiny Toons that was really thirsting to make good cartoons. And we had guys who really wanted to make the Looney Tunes, and we had guys who wanted to make Tiny Tunes and, and, and the classic characters. We also had a group of rebels and kind of cowboys and cowgirls who, didn't, who were there to get a paycheck, but they really wanted to do more stuff. And those were some of the guys who went off and did Ren and Stimpy mm. and the Nickelodeon shows, and, and some wound up working for Disney or going on yeah. to Pixar. But you had everybody, suddenly you had everybody who was like between 25 and 35 who grew up kind of slaving under the Saturday morning rule, and now we're free to do things. We can make our MGM cartoons, our Tex Avery cartoons. And um, Gene McCurdy, who I have to give all, all props to, who was head of uh, the uh, Warner Animation at that time, really recognized that desire. And she was a great boss in the, fact, in, in the respect that she would have a property and then she'd link up talent with it. And if you really are passionate about it, go do it, make it a good show. And that's what uh, came down with Batman, because we were going to do a Batman series. The Tim Burton movie had been very popular, and um, Warners wanted to keep that franchise alive until uh, the next movie. Yeah. So, because it was a long gestation period, 
because it kind of was first kind of green, maybe around 1990. Yes. Uh, but it kind of actually ended up coming out a few months after Batman Returns was released in 92. Yes, Batman had a long uh, gestation process, and part of that was trying to find the tone mm. of, of the series. Early on, I had wanted to work on Batman, and I, I did a lot of work on Tiny Toons with Bruce Timm, and we got along very well. And Eric Radomski had a vision for the background and the way he thought that Gotham City could the look. The backgrounds were, were too black for the... TV, weren't they? Yeah, well, what happened was Eric came up with this really dramatic way of taking very bright colors and painting them on black paper. So that you had a very, you know, some of the colors were very vibrant, but against a muted background. And it really gave Gotham City this very dark uh, look, which was very striking and very th uh, film noir, especially mm -hmm. for animated television at the time. So I worked on a development with Bruce, and uh, we had. Uh, come up with some characters that we liked. And then we had gotten picked up on Tiny Toons. We were going to do a Tiny Toons directed video movie. I had been offered a movie to write, so I actually wound up leaving Warner's for a while. And then during that time, Batman was kind of going back and forth with different writers. They were looking for a tone that is that where uh, I've got Batman in my basement? The episode comes from that yeah, sort of some, confusion and somewhere written during that time, uh, the uh, prophecy of doom. A few others that were sort of like trying to find their way, and Alan Burnett came in from uh, Hanna Barbera. Alan is a very good writer, but like Gene, he is a, a wonderful guy with very little ego who will give somebody a job and just say, "Do your best," and know that it will come in. Uh, and, and, and be terrific. So he had hunted me down at home where I was still working on this movie, and he said, is there any chance you're going to come back? And I said, I don't know if I want to come back on a regular basis. And he said, I would love to have you in on Batman. So as a way of trying out you know, where they were, I wrote two scripts for him. One was Heart of Ice, and the other one was Joker's Favor, which introduced uh, Harley Quinn. And he, um, yeah, there it is. And uh, <laughs> thank you. Oh, that's, yeah, that's my favorite, too. Um, <laughs> I, no, I, that was the first one, and it's the one I love the most. So, But it is the moment where we, uh, as an audience, kind of knew this was a different show. Right. And uh, uh, you took probably the most hokey villain yeah. in the Batman uh, rogues gallery, uh -huh. and you gave him this amazing pathos. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. How, how do you come by Like, what makes you think, oh, no, I'm not going to do Joker or Riddler or Catwoman? I'm going to go down to the Z list and elevate them. That's what made it fun. And it was a challenge to, to take Mr. Freeze. And I always kind of liked him. I had a, when I was a kid, I had a record that, of, of clips from the Adam West show. And Mr. Freeze was this guy with a German accent who was always you know, talking about eating baked Alaska or something, or <laughs> Batman, you will freeze to death, and I'm eating dessert while you freeze. And I'm, I, would, I, I learned it by heart. And you know, I thought, that's really stupid, but it's kind of fun. But we, we didn't want to do that. And we were thinking, what if he is frozen on the inside? What if he's got a frozen heart? What if we do elements of the, uh, you know, the, the Snow Queen? You know, the, somebody, somebody, there's no warmth to them. And how did he get to that point? And we, Bruce and I were talking back and forth, and that we threw in a few things we liked from old monster movies. There's a little bit of um, Vincent Price's Dr. Fibes in there with the, you know, obsessed with bringing his wife back to life and things like yeah, which that. Which probably explain for the two people who haven't seen Heart of Ice. Yeah. The backstory you created, which never existed before, right. was... Oh, the backstory was that he, was a, he worked in a cryogenics lab, and his wife had a, had a deadly disease, and he had to freeze her, and he was trying to bring her back to life. 
However, the company didn't know that he was doing this. And when they found out, it's like, you're spending money on this, shut it down. And it goes, if you shut it down, she'll die. It's like, you're fired. You're spending our money and, you know, you're out. And during, while he's fighting them, the uh, machinery malfunctions and he's coated with this coolant and this throws him into this, uh, you know, refrigerated state. And it was, inter- it was interesting for us to have the businessman who's this warm-hearted guy in public be this cold-hearted, money-grubbing, you know, bastard. And that Freeze is actually the one who's the more noble of the character, even though he, you know, he's absolutely ruthless about what he does. And Batman is in the middle of this sympathetic to him and really on his side, but he can't allow him to do what he's doing. In a way, you created a monster, though, because the 1997 much derided movie Batman and Robin yes. uh, borrowed liberally from your new origin. Yes. Now, was that sort of like a bittersweet thing where I'm glad that it's become absorbed as part of the mythos, but why? <laughs> it comes with the territory. You know, it was... Uh, I, I realized the movie was not going to be have the the heart of the of of the episode i thought it was interesting that they did it i got to take my nephew on the set one day and see nora freeze or the dummy floating in the in the in the in the, in the chamber and i thought well it's kind of nice that they, they they used that as a as a background but again you know i can't be too possessive about things like that because in order to craft our vision of batman we borrowed liberally from Everything else that had gone before, there's a little bit of Adam West, there's a lot of Neil Adams, Frank Miller, Frank Robbins. Uh, we would take, we would kind of borrow with both hands. We 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 had hoped we'd be more reverential about it and respectful, but you know, a, a good idea is a good idea. Well, I mean, it wasn't just the list villains. You wrote uh, the lion's share of the Joker episodes, and mm-hmm. which uh, Bruce Tim and Mark Hamill and your other collaborators, you probably got the most kind of uh, deranged, psychotic uh, villain you could possibly have mm-hmm. on Saturday morning or yep. you know, on, on a kid's show. How did you go about creating that version of the Joker and how did you go about uh, pushing it through? Well, the Joker has always been a character that I've always liked a lot and he, I don't like seeing him written poorly and, and, and too gaggy. If he's too much of a clown, if he's, giving, if he's giving out with puns and gags that you could get out of a riddle book or something or, or any cartoon show, he loses a lot, and yet he can't be really what he is in some of the darker comics. Like we, we looked at some of the comics, like *The Laughing Fish* by Steve Englehart and *The Joker's Five Way Revenge* by Danny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Which you combined into one episode. Which we did, yeah. And but there is an intensity and a madness to him, and a and a and a murderousness that we loved, but we can't do it in you know for kids without horrifying them so what we did was we made him very mordant we made his, the the humor very black very ironic uh, i had an, a, a personal idea that he's very much like a schoolyard bully who will put his arm around you and smile in your face and at the same time he's putting a knife in your ribs and that sort of thing and he's and he's always working toward your destruction or the destruction of people near him and that made him a little bit more than just a gag spouting clown and your interest really is sort of in the, in the larger rogues gallery. There are whole episodes like Joker's Favor right. uh, where Batman is not even necessarily a supporting character. He makes kind of cameos in his own show. Sure. Uh, why, why is that kind of a, an interest of yours to kind of 
keep his presence there, but maybe not have him on screen? And was that resisted by the, the network? It wasn't really resisted by the network at first. It was more like we were, we were showing what, where we could go with all these characters. And one of the ideas, Joker's Favor was an, a story that I'd, I'd wanted to do for a long time because sometimes I'll get little fragments of story ideas and I always like the idea of somebody getting you know, an incident of road rage and then the guy you're yelling at or flipping off is the Joker and he just kind of looks at you and it, just as it happens in there, he kind of looks at the guy and he just switches lanes and starts following him. And now we're on this guy, it's like, oh, holy hell, what have I done? I'm going to die and, 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 and you deal with this because now it's an ordinary person, somebody with no yeah. training and no superpowers going up against yeah. a guy who's really going to enjoy torturing him. <laughs> so you put a character like that in the Crucible, it's like how, do, how does this guy force to be Batman or force to you know, be brave enough to take on, on the Joker and, and, and beat him in his own game? That to me is a, you know, a very interesting story. Well, that idea of kind of an average person having to deal with these sort of evils sure. and trying to be Batman kind of brings us to your book, uh -huh. uh, The Dark Knight, a right. true Batman story. Because in 1992, 1993, this series comes out. It's a commercial and critical success. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you got a feature-length movie in the works on uh -huh. Batman. Your professional life couldn't be going better. Yes. But then uh, you're, you, this, you have this terrible night. Uh -huh. I think we have the, the, the book cover of Dark Knight. We might put that up before you lead us into it. Travis. <laughs> Certainly it's about the Dark Knight, and uh, Travis will uh, bring yeah. it up in a sec. Well, it's only fitting, you know, he made it screw up, so he's <laughs> laughing at us. <laughs> uh, but yeah, t tell us about the, uh, the book, The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight, uh, it, it was, um, it's a memoir of, of what happened that night. I was, I was coming home from a date. I had decided to walk home rather than accept a ride from, from the girl I'd gone out with, and I was, I was just, I was walking home, and my thoughts were sort of on her and about how the relationship was not going how, how I wanted, and... A lot of different things were playing in my head that night. And I was walking down a street in West Hollywood, which is a you know usually very safe area, and I see these two men coming toward me, and I look at them, and I go, oh, the two black guys. But I think oh, they're probably guys who live in the neighborhood. They're wearing team jackets, you know, probably actors or musicians or even two guys on a date. I don't even know. And I walked by them, and I heard them talking in a very comical way, and I realized they're kind of talking in a way of like mocking white people, and I look at them, and then they just go into this vicious mode, and they grabbed me, and they just started slamming me. They started smashing me in the face, they started swearing, they started screaming, they threw me, one tried to kick my knee out, and I managed to, you know, I took the key and the, the kick in my, in my, uh, the fleshy part of my thigh, and I sort of spared myself from. So he tried to kick you in the kneecap. Yeah, I tried to kick my kneecap out, and uh, and and I I fell at the right moment. I was trying to elude it, but then he got really mad and he smashed me in the he kicked me in the face. They both went to work on me, and eventually they got around to robbing me. But uh, it was you know. So I mean, it wasn't just a mugging; it was a vicious attack. It, it was like a hate crime. I guess you could call it a hate crime, or I guess I think you it, have, uh, we have an image which opens yes. the book of mm -hmm. you uh, dealing with the, the level of of, of injury. Yeah. What happened was uh, I went, you know, after I got home, my face was pretty badly uh, uh, messed up and I was bleeding and swollen and I was kind of more humiliated than anything else and I thought, I don't even want to go to the doctor. I want to drink a bottle of rum and go to sleep and I just want to sleep it off. And, and, and I, did, I called the police. We went back to, to visit the, the, the mugging site and the cop's attitude was sort of like... Well, you're alive, 
I don't think we have much to go on, but the win is you're alive and we'll give you a ride home. And if we hear anything, you know, we'll call you in. But they were not really, they, they weren't unhelpful. They were just very matter of fact about mm-hmm. it. And at one point I found uh, a piece of paper, a receipt that they had ripped out of my pocket. And I said, do you want to take that and dust it for, for prints? And they kind of, their attitude was like, that's okay. <laughs> Here, take it back. Didn't, they, didn't one of them kind of joke, uh, oh, you really could have used Batman tonight? Yeah, they, asked, I, they asked me what I did, and I said I was a cartoonist, or, and I wrote uh, Batman. They said, you could use him tonight. And I said, yeah, Batman would have tested the receipt for fingerprints. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of kept that quiet to myself. I mean, I was sort of like, and then they said, what? And he was like, oh, yeah. Not, and then one of them asked me how I could bu- help him buy cells from Aladdin because he apparently had taken his kid to Aladdin and really loved it. And it's like, well, officer, when I stop hemorrhaging, I'll, I'll make some calls for you. How about that? So. And the extent of the injuries, you know, uh, powdered uh, parts of your skull, you needed actually to get plates and it was... He, I didn't know how bad I had been hurt until the next day when um, the urging of friends and also the fact I woke up, I, I wanted to just drink myself, drunk, uh, you know, drink myself to sleep, go to bed and then wake up in the morning and, and hopefully feel better. I wound up getting about 40 minutes of sleep and then woke up absolutely sick to my stomach because I had drunk too much and the pain was so much. And I, at that point, I realized something is really broken. I went to my doctor first thing in the morning. I said it was an emergency. And he said, um, uh, you've got to go see a specialist because this is really bad. And then he did the x-ray and part of my skull had been powdered because of the kicking and the, and the, the force of the blows and it was all broken up in there. I was still functional but he said this has got to be, you, you're in for surgery. So the next day I went in to sort of settle things up at the office because I'd be out of work for about you know four days and the day after that I was in for, for surgery and, and that's what happened. They, they went into my face and they, uh, my zygomatic arch was all broken up and they had to rebuild it and put in some metal plates and uh, and, uh, and, and then it was a long process of recovery, both physically and mentally. And as like anyone would, you kind of imagined, like the kind of the cops suggested, what would have happened if Batman had been there? You, mm-hmm. And in the book, you reimagine the sequence, and I think we have a slide to go with that, mm-hmm. in which you imagine what it would have been like, how he would have dealt with the situation. Yeah, he just comes swinging down, smash into the car, pull the guys out, the guys are screaming for mercy, and he's just, you know... Tough, you know, he's like, oh, God, it wouldn't be great if you could do that. Wouldn't it be great if I could do that? Yeah. But you, the reality is, you know, you chubby little guy walking down the street and two guys, you know, big, huge guys attack you and they're out for blood. You're, you're really not going to, there's not a lot you can do. Yeah. And my attitude was like, just ride it out. I've been hiking enough and I've been around wild animals enough, you know, that I know that when one attacks you, you're going to get, the best you can do is play dead. And that's what went through my head. Is like it was like being ripped up by a bear or something like that. And after you returned from the hospital, you you describe quite vividly and quite colorfully actually in the book mm-hmm. uh, dealing with that trauma and Batman and Batman's rogues gallery mm-hmm. serving as a sort of uh, Greek chorus in your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joker says, "Just don't worry about it. Stay at home." Yeah. Batman's like a drill sergeant. He's like, "You've yeah. done this, this, and this." I think we even have a slide where he gives you a, a, a hard time. Yeah. Uh, we might go to the next slide. And it's kind of like, you could have done this move or that move. Yeah. So um, how did you come upon that device? And why does the Batman and Batman's rogues gallery work so well? Well, Batman, I never really think of him as, at least in relation to myself, as a very friendly character. He's a very business-like character. And he, his attitude toward me is like, you know what I'm about. You know what I do. And you know that the, I, in order to do what I do, I have to be brusque and uh, just 
do as I say and, and do as I do and get through it. Whereas the villains are more of the voice of temptation, the, the more the voice of indulgence and the voice of derision. Um, Poison Ivy is obviously like the, the worst aspect of what I've been going through in relationships and very mocking and like, like a mirror image of how, uh, of all my fears about dating and my relationships at that time because she is the, the temptress and she's the manipulator and, and uh, the Joker is the tormentor and the Scarecrow represents fear and everything. So each of the Batman villains, uh, all those guys there, they all represent something in uh, like an extension of the human condition and taken to kind of a monstrous uh, degree. And uh, they, they're very potent. They make very good... Uh, like ghosts in your head, mm. like the like Dickens' ghosts of of, of Christmas uh, in, in different aspects, and then they can mean different things. And the one who doesn't show up very much until the very end is Harley, because I think we actually have that image. Maybe we'll right. go to the, the the Harley image near the, the end of the book. Yep. And yeah, because you expect the Harley Quinn is going to have a, a big presence in the book, and she doesn't turn up till the the absolute final slide. No, uh, or final page. No, because Harley at that point in my life rec uh, represented a sort of a joy. I really loved the character. I loved writing her. I was very good friends with uh, Arlene Sorkin, who did her voice, who actually is in the book to a, to a much greater degree than Harley. And Harley, as Harley, sort of symbolized joy, and there was no joy. It was, yeah. And it wasn't until. Some years later, that I found that I could that she had a place in that story at the very end as a way of saying, "Okay, I can go on with this and I can create new things." And she's a part of that because the last page of the story, that last image, came about. The story originally ended on the page before where I sort of say goodbye to Batman and my editor Shelley Bond, who you know I have to give all thanks to for helping me finish the what was a very difficult project. She said, Harley's in like two panels of this, and you're known for Harley, and do you want to put her in any more places? And I said, there's no more room for her. And she goes, well, could you think about it maybe? I mean, where is she now in your life? And at that moment, I was, I had an office at Warner's again. I was working on a new Justice League show, and at that moment, I was just finishing up a cartoon with her. And I thought, well, it's like she's here right now. Yeah. I, and so you, and you did for a while actually think about you didn't want to write Batman anymore. Right. You just felt that the, the crime component was too difficult. Yeah. You could go do Tiny Tunes or other kind of funny animal books. And then you had an encounter that kind of changed your mind and said there was value to this. Yeah, around that time, um, other studios had been um, after me to hire me away because um, Warner Brothers was doing very well, so they were looking to bring over their talent to start to start uh, you know animation divisions elsewhere. So I was offered a number of uh, cartoon characters here and there. A lot of them were funny animals. Some of them were uh, well known. Some of them were rather obscure. And I was having meetings with them, and I did not want to write Batman anymore. Especially we were in the middle of writing Mask of the Phantasm, and I had to write one scene where Bruce goes after two hoods who, who mug somebody on the street and he gets his clock cleaned by them. And I looked at the outline, I'm going like, Alan, can Marty Pasco or Michael Reeves write this? And Alan said, I'll do it, and don't, don't, don't worry about it. And, um, and I just sort of walked away from it. And, it was, and Alan, you know, he's kind of, he kind of comes off like Batman in the book, a bit of a hard ass and a taskmaster, but he was, that was really kind of what I needed at the time. He's a very good guy, a very good friend. And, um, and, when, and he kept the assignments open for me. He could have replaced me or just split up the assignments among the other two writers, but he said, he kind of thought, well, maybe you'll be back. And so when I was ready, I did come back and I wrote you know, a significant uh, portion of the movie with, with them. 
And um, you described that I, an encounter in uh, Tower Records or something. You yeah. Know. Oh, that's right. And and what happened was uh, one of the things that got me back into it was I was at Tower Records late one night with my sister, and uh, one of the workers there saw me wearing a, a Warner Brothers jacket, and we started talking about cartoons. And it turns out that every night he would go home with his wife who had cancer, and they would watch cartoons that they had taped during the day. And that was like the high point of their day. And that, I found that very touching. And I had heard that often from other people that they really liked the cartoons, but it really struck with me then, like, you know, sort of like, you have one job, maybe you should do it. Like, your job is to, you do this reasonably well, why don't you stay with it? Why, you know, you make people happy. You're, it's good, you're, the people you work with are good. It's a fun job, and kind of get over yourself and go back to work. And more than that, and this is something I realized in therapy, and I also show in the book, is if I walked away from it, the bad guys win. Like, these guys drive me away from something I like doing that I really loved, and I'm not going to like what I, you know, working for other people as much as I do working with Alan and Bruce and on the, on the, on the show we created. So that was really a turning moment where I sort of realized, it, you know, it's not all about you. Yeah. I mean, that, and that, that impact, thinking about that impact that your work has had, we've actually uh, talked to a few Hardy Quinn fans here in uh -huh. Australia. So before we launch into Hardy Quinn, we might actually play the clip of the uh, local Hardy Quinn fans. Great. And that'll give us a, a gear change. So All right. Quinn's a character who's taken on a life of her own. Uh, what does it feel like to be uh, one of the, the co-parents of this character who's literally everywhere? It feels great. I mean, I love it. It's like uh, sort of over overwhelming. I mean, I uh, I love the character. I loved her since I created her with Bruce and the way when, when we put her in the episodes and I always would find funny dialogue for her to do. And I had hoped early on like she wouldn't overpower Batman too much or she wouldn't be like a, disrupt a dis disruptive element that would derail the episodes. And I think that for the most part, she found a way. We found a way to integrate her where, um, where she she came off very well. She's a very she wound up being a very um, valuable asset to the episodes in the fact that we could have a very dark story, and then bring her in for a few beats, even if it wasn't a story that was really yeah. about her, and lighten the mood a bit. And yeah, over it, the edge, the in uh, over the, the edge, you know, where where she she's, wants to sue Bruce Wayne. Yes, she wants to sue Bruce Wayne for uh, you know uh, uh, you know uh, <laughs> nervous distress and, and and everything. And I and to me, that's very logical. If Bruce Wayne was ever unmasked, every villain would come out of the woodwork with a lawsuit because you know they've all been beaten up by this guy, and now they know how to get him. <laughs> and uh, how would you characterize her relationship with the with the Joker? It's complex, to say it, the least. It is a complex relationship, and I think it's one that's evolving and. Back then, it really was. She had. Uh, she loved him. It was like this is the early part of the relationship where it's fun, where it's exciting. She broke him out of jail. She fell in love with him. She sees him as a sort of tortured, artistic soul. Nobody else understands him. He did what he did. He made this connection with her that that brought out these emotions in her, and. And now, and you get to see the relationship go back and forth from being flirty and fun and exciting to being uh, downer and abusive and and uh, and something she wants to get out of. But then she goes back to it. It makes her a very tragic character, and it also it also was sort of drawing on what I was going through at the same time in the Dark Knight book. I was uh, willing to put my honest needs and 
wants out of a relationship on hold in order to be appealing to certain women that I felt were uh, my special person. And uh, in a sense, kind of being a clown for a, a person I didn't even recognize in order to be agreeable and to... You describe in the book going on a disastrous relationship with a, uh, or date with an actress that... Right. It, it was very one-sided. Yes, and, in, and during the, the uh, date, at some point, uh, I'm, I'm saying all the things that I hope she will respond to, and then she just sort of says, gee, I hope you're seeing somebody nice yourself, and then this pie comes in and hits me in the face, and it's the Joker saying, oh, that was worth it. It was worth sitting through, the, <laughs> through all her yammering for. And that's really what I felt like at the time. It's like, here's that, that pit, in the, that, that moment in the center of your stomach where you're on a date with somebody, and then you're talking about relationships, and you don't really want to bring up the subject because, you, you know, what if she likes me, what if she doesn't? And then she says, you know, I'm dating somebody, and it's like, and I'm sitting here paying for dinner, and I'm the one who's, who's hoping, and then suddenly it's like, well, why are you out with me? And it's one of those things that it's just like, I think we all go through it to some degree. I went through it a lot more, and, I, and, I, I, and a lot of those feelings I transferred on to Harley as a sort of way of working myself out of it. And through that mad love origin. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then when you started to give her a little bit of autonomy, right. you paired her up with Poison Ivy, who has these sort of like explicitly feminist credentials. Right. And she almost sort of learned from Poison Ivy, at least Poison Ivy is kind of the good friend would try and say, why are you with this psychotic clown? Right. And their relationship became much more interesting as well. Yes. I mean, I think I, uh, Ivy does not have a lot of human contact and she's more into manipulation and control. And... Harley sort of defies all that. She can't really figure out Harley, at least at first. And then, but she sort of responds to Harley in a way that, like, you know, she doesn't need anybody either. She's just sort of fun and happy, and and that's sort of a, a, a human element I can be in touch with. And they just became friends. It seemed very natural to me that that Ar Ivy would respond to Harley and sort of like, "Kid, you need some help," and here I am. And that, that Harley brings a bit of fun into their life, and there's some honest affection there and, and a very solid friendship. And when you did introduce uh, Harley's backstory, it wasn't in the animated series. It, you and Bruce did a standalone issue of uh, The Batman Adventures, the tie-in book. Uh -huh. uh, what was the, why did you go that route, and what could you do in comics that you couldn't do in animation? Well, uh, when we did the Mad Love comic, uh, DC had offered us, uh, you know, they, they basically said, we love the show. We think you guys are, are doing a really good job. If you ever want to do something with the character in that style for the show, we'll do a special issue. And Bruce had always wanted to do, you know, work in comics, and I had, I had wanted to write something, too. So we started thinking about, let's do a good Batman story. And then we just said, you know, Harley is sort of like, everybody likes her, let's do an origin story of Harley. And I remember we were sitting down over lunch one day and over hamburgers and just said, what if, uh, what if she has a connection to him that we don't even know? And then it became up, what if she was a doctor? What if she was his therapist? What if, she, you know, she worked with him at Arkham and he got into her head? And then we find out she had this sort of surprising, tragic connection to him and that she really was kind of driven mad in a way by him and, and he broke her in some degree and put her back together again. And that we couldn't really do that, sh that, that, that story in the animated series and do something that cerebral and, and adult and twisted, but um, it worked very well as a comic book and it really got into her head and it's a mixture of a tragic story, but it's rendered in such a way that there's a tremendous amount of humor and, and fun in it, and also amazing pathos when she takes the punishment, and, and at the end, her resolve crumbles when he gives her a little bit of affection, 
it's to me it's a very human story that you know a lot of people I think can relate to, and it really shows that she's got this 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 tragic flaw in her, and you kind of hope for for better things for her. So you wrote. Uh, pretty much most of the main Harley episodes of the animated right. series. You introduced her to the comics both mm-hmm. in this special issue and in the or- original continuity. But the character now has a huge life. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we think of Margot Robbie uh, just this past year playing sure. her in Suicide Squad. What is it like uh, to see other creators take on your character and also see it become part of the, bat- the bat mythos? Well, I- I've seen very few instances where I think she was ill-served by uh, other creators. I think... I, I, w- one of the great things about her is that I think most everybody finds something in her that they can um, they can tap into. There have been a few times when I've said, that's too rude, that's too rough, I don't think we should do that, it's not really her, but usually it, it comes off uh, pretty well. And um, when I talked to Margot after, after seeing the movie, she was very gracious. She said, thank you for you know giving me this great role. And I said, well, the casting director, actually, but you know, I, I I agree, you did a great job. But she really had researched the character a lot. She fell in love with the character. She really sympathizes with her and has really taken the character under her wing. And she said, "Is there anything you think I should bring to the character when I play her again? Is there anything you that, that's missing?" And I said, "No, you brought a tremendous amount of fun and confidence to the character, and as long as you've got that, you can do anything with her." And uh, and you know, it, was, it, was, it was very nice talking to her about the character. She really gets her. That's really good to hear uh, because, you know, you have that proprietary interest. And, uh, yeah. But it's great to see that she's gone on and had this. She gets her and she brings a lot. That, it brings some things that I wouldn't even have thought about. She brings a kind of like a very innocent, playful uh, sexiness to her that only, I think, the, a, a live uh, performer can give. Everything like... Uh, the whole scene where Batman is giving her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and she turns it into a kiss and she's very impish about the whole thing. I, I thought that was very, very charming hard, yeah. and just very, very astute. One character who seems, we haven't mentioned at all, is Robin. Yes. Where do you find, where do you place Robin? Because he's a, he's a complicated character. He seems uh-huh. to be there almost as a sort of a economic sort of imperative. Right. Uh, but how do you find writing a character and is he a burden? Not really. Uh, I found that when we wrote him in the first season, he was a very welcome uh, element to the show, that we would bring him in occasionally as sort of a um, an angel on Batman's shoulder to get him more humanized. Uh, my friend uh, Eddie Gorodetsky, who's a very good uh, a sitcom writer, wrote the episode Christmas with the Joker, mm. where Robin really is trying to instill some element of fun in Batman. To watch to, It's a Wonderful Life. To watch It's a Wonderful Life. And Eddie wrote this great line, like Batman says, I've never seen it. And Robin says, really, why? And he goes, I could never get past the title. <laughs> and, <it's, laughs> to, and that's a very knowing line. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and when we brought in Robin and those elements and when we used him, you know, so you can use him at your discretion, it yeah. was fine. But then comes season two. And then suddenly it's the adventures of Batman and Robin. And, and you again, have to use him in every episode. Then again, we had to deal with the network. And the network is saying, kids don't relate to it. It's Batman. And that's, that's the thing that rankles me the most is when a network person will say, I don't get Bugs Bunny. He's an adult. It's like, he's a rabbit. And he goes, he's an adult rabbit. It's, <laughs> he's not a kid. He doesn't talk like a kid. He's not on a skateboard. He's not, you know, using kid slang. I, I don't get him. And I'm going like, no, you don't 
get your job is like, <laughs> just, just let me do mine and then it's sort of like robin has to be in every episode and there we found we were usually able to 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 make him work in the episodes that we used him in um I think it worked better when we made Tim Drake Robin and we brought him in because suddenly now we do have the kid. Now mm. we now we have somebody who is learning the ropes, who is a bit more of a brat than Dick Grayson is, who's going to make more mistakes and is going to be more passionate and uh, about what he's doing and more determined to uh, to um, to bring out other elements of Batman. And then you know there, there were times we used him when Tim was just a, a tremendous character. Um, but again, you know, uh, we wound up scrapping a lot of episodes that we we really wanted to do. We wanted to do a we couple of episodes. We wanted to do Black Canary versus Catwoman and, and bring Black Canary in as sort of a, we had brought in Zatanna in an episode, then we were going to bring in Black Canary and bring these other kind of interesting female characters in to work with Batman and broaden the cast a little bit. And they just said, we would go into these pitches and they'd stop us halfway through, where's Robin? Where's Robin, yeah. He's not in this one. But, it's dead. No, we, we, we don't care about Black Canary, another adult character, and, a, and I hate to say <laughs> this, and a female character, and uh, because there, it's like it's a boy show, boys' toys. You know, keep it, keep it, keep it for the boys, and that's something that. Well, okay. There's a lot more we can discuss it, but I'm eager yeah. to throw it. Open I don't want to get into like uh, eager to throw it open to people. So we sure. might have it. We might start talking about Superman the animated series, but yes. a logical follow-up to Batman yes. the animated series. How do you go about writing Superman uh, in this sort of you know, like how, how how do you how is Superman different from Batman? Well, Superman um, as a character, he's a much more upbeat and positive character, and in order to reflect the tone of the show. Bruce Tim wound up changing his art wait, wait. style. Superman's more upbeat and optimistic than Batman. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and so yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, I, I've missed that lately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, back then, twenty years ago, he was. Um, so the look of Metropolis is obviously much different than Gotham City. The characters are more streamlined, uh, a, a lot brighter palette, and so Bruce wound up coming up with a different vision for Superman. And then when we put Batman into that world, he redesigned the characters so that the, the streamlined approach. I think we actually have an right. image of Batman and Superman together in the world's finest mm -hmm. uh, crossover. Uh, and it's a good, it's a great design, and they do work well together. And that set the tone for things like Justice League and its different iterations, and even to some degree, uh, Batman, Batman Beyond. And how do you write Batman and Superman at the same time? Well, you have to make them, give them big contrasts. You have to make. Batman naturally suspicious of Superman. You have to, uh, you know, Batman does what he does to punish the wicked. Superman is the one who's going to say, stop, there's due process, we've got to do this. I've, I've, I've stopped the, the problem. Um, you don't have to beat the guy up. And uh, Superman is more, you know, it's more of a boy, you know, as much as we use the term, he's more of a boy scout and Batman is more of a bad boy. He yeah. breaks the rules. Uh, Dark Knight is out now. It's been out for about six months. It's received a lot of critical acclaim. Uh, New York Times bestseller. Uh, you've had to talk about it several times mm -hmm. uh, here and uh, in other opportunities. Has the experience been cathartic? Yep, it's been it's been very cathartic in the fact that I feel like yeah, it's over. It's done. It's it's now. Um, uh, I was able once I was able to to take. I remember when it arrived in the. Um, in the mail, I'd gotten the copies, and Misty, my wife, came in and said, your book is out. And, and she gave me a copy, you want to read it? And it's like, 
I just got a French Marsupilami comic album and I'm reading that first, so can I finish this first and I, I'll get to that. And I would rather spend time with a wacky little funny animal in a language I can barely read than my own book because I've gone so far beyond it. So I finished up the French comic, then I read Dark Knight, and then I, I went, yes, done. And I put it on the shelf next to my copy of the Batman animated book that I did with Chip Kidd, and I walked away. And it's like, there it is, and there it'll stay, and I'm happy it's, it's out, and that's where I leave it. Very good. Join me in thanking Paul Dean. Thank you. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.